Heavenly Father, we stand here amazed in your presence. We thank you, Lord, for the revelation of Jesus Christ, fully God and fully man, intervening in history. We had looked forward to, Lord Jesus, all of creation had yearned and longed and groaned for the redemption that was to come. And even now we look forward to redemption consummately fulfilled. When one day our Savior, who has come once, will come again. And on that day, every knee shall bow, every tongue will confess that He is Lord to the glory of the Father. Yet in this meantime, from the masses of the unbelieving, in the miry clay of sin, you have redeemed for yourself a remnant and a people to show forth your praises, to shine as lights in this dark world, to bring the message of the kingdom of God, to share with each passing generation that redemption, forgiveness of sins, recreation, adoption, justification, glorification, sanctification are found in Jesus Christ alone. We thank you, Father, that these things are recorded for us in your Scripture, and we thank you that by your Spirit's power they are illumined to our soul. I pray that the foundation of our worship this morning would be on the rock, Jesus Christ, and as we open his word today, that you would write it on the tables of our hearts and open up our minds to understand its great truths, its power, and its promises. We thank you for this time we have together. We pray that you would bless it and multiply it to our soul's benefit. In the name of Jesus Christ we pray. Amen. Hallelujah. What a great joy and privilege it is to share together in the worship of Jesus Christ and in the meditation of His Scriptures. Turn with me in your Bible to Psalm chapter 55. This morning our text will be Psalm 55, which is recorded for us as a worship song that was commissioned for the choir master. David has written this masculine or didactic or teaching song. Wisdom, worship, prayer, lament, and triumph are all themes. And this morning, we will study them and see how the worship of the Psalter is relevant for us today as we contemplate the spiritual battle that we face even now, much like David faced then. So stand with me, if you would, with your Bible open to Psalm 55, and let's read these words together. The title of Psalm 55, To the choir master with stringed instruments, a masculine of David. And thus continues the infallible word of Christ in verse 1. Give ear to my prayer, O God, and hide not yourself from my plea for mercy. Attend to me and answer me. I am restless in my complaint and I moan because of the noise of the enemy, because of the oppression of the wicked. For they drop trouble upon me and in anger they bear a grudge against me. My heart is in anguish within me. The terrors of death have fallen upon me. Fear and trembling come upon me and horror overwhelms me. And I say, oh, that I had wings like a dove. I would fly away and be at rest. Yes, I would wander far away. I would lodge in the wilderness, Selah. I would hurry to find a shelter from the raging wind and tempest. Destroy, O Lord, divide their tongues, for I see violence and strife in the city. Day and night they go around it on its walls, and iniquity and trouble are within it. Ruin is in its midst. Oppression and fraud do not depart from its marketplace. For it is not an enemy who taunts me, then I could bear it. It is not an adversary who deals insolently with me, then I could hide from him. But it is you, O oh man, my equal, my companion, my familiar friend. We used to take sweet counsel together within God's house. We walked in the throng 
let death steal over them. Let them go down to Sheol alive, for evil is in their dwelling place and in their heart. Verse 16, But I call to God, and the Lord will save me, evening and morning and at noon. I utter my complaint and moan, and He hears my voice. He redeems my soul in safety from the battle that I wage. For many are arrayed against me. God will give ear and humble them. He who is enthroned from of old, Selah, because they do not change and do not fear God. My companion stretched out his hand against his friends. He violated his covenant. His speech was smooth as butter, yet war was in his heart. His words were softer than oil, yet they were drawn swords. Cast your burden on the Lord, and He will sustain you. He will never permit the righteous to be moved. But you, O God, will cast them down into the pit of destruction. Men of blood and treachery shall not live out half their days, but I will trust in you. This is the holy word of God. You may be seated. Psalm 55 is a three-part song separated by two selahs. Verses 1 all the way through 7 give us the first division. Verses 8 through 19 the second and 20 through 23 the close. Three-part song. David sang this song, we can presume, from verse 17 or certainly confessions of prayer and worship like it three times a day. 5517 tells us, evening and morning and at noon, I utter my complaint and moan, and he hears my voice. A three-part song, utilized three parts or three times daily, as David brings his prayer requests and his worship before the Lord. And furthermore, this song, Psalm 55, encapsulates three indispensable elements of prayer in crisis. There is supplication imprecation, and violation. Those three will form the basis of my sermon outline today, and I'll cover them in a little bit more detail and introduction in a moment. Spurgeon, the great Charles Spurgeon, the prince of preachers, as some have, want to call, have called him, because of his great ability to expound texts like these. In speaking of Psalm 55, he labeled it a warrior's imprecation. What is imprecation? Imprecation is, an, is a call or a decree of judgment curses to vindicate the righteous and to punish the wicked. It's a calling for the Lord and His glory to be manifest in the destruction of His enemies. The warrior's imprecation is what Spurgeon entitled Psalm 55 or call for judgment. He is quoted as saying the following in summary about this psalm. Spurgeon says, There is justice in the universe. Love itself demands it. Pity to rebels against God, as such is no virtue. We pray for them as creatures. We abhor them as enemies of God. We need in these days far more to guard against the disguised iniquity which sympathizes with evil and counts punishment to be cruelty than against the harshness of a former age. Let me pause there and add some explanation. Spurgeon saw in his day, the late 1800s, things that we easily see in ours, that any hint or notion or idea in the Bible or in the Christian confession or otherwise, that God is a just and righteous God who punishes evil, who does not forever endure with a wicked world, nor His enemies, human, spiritual, or otherwise, this idea is anathema. It's against the confession of the culture of our day. We're fine with an unconditionally loving picture of Jesus who smiles and laughs as if it were cute when we sin, or who winks at evil, or who changes his ethics so that that which was decreed in the Old Covenant and even into the New Testament is no longer relevant, obviously, in these days. With the changing mores of culture and the discoveries of science, we've now transcended the archaic notion of the Word of God such that these old ideas are passe now and no longer apply. Thus, when the world looks at the Bible, 
trying to justify their own sin. They see the punishment of the wicked and they see the justice that evil deserves as something of an iniquity in itself. They see it as cruelty. And again, and, and against this harshness of a former age, they want to declare now that all things are lawful, that it's perfectly fine to continue to live as we wish. But Psalm 55 awakens us from the stupor of this kind of unfaithfulness to Scripture. The infidelity of secularism comes to the fore, and we ought to have our senses alert and awake so that we are not corrupted by the thinking of our day. Prayers and songs like Psalm 55 are a great prescription when we live in a world of anything goes. As Spurgeon rightly observed, Psalm 55 is relevant to us today. It relates to our situation so long as Genesis 3.15 still stands. There's been many uh, systematic theologians who look for the structure of Scripture who have noted the significance, the preeminent significance of Genesis 3.15, which tells us, among other things, from the very Word of God, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. That's the reality of life this side of the fall. There is another reality, thankfully and graciously, however, He, speaking of Christ prophetically in this text, shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise His heel. Nevertheless, though there is this gospel promise, it's in the context of spiritual war. There is conflict, enmity, there is a warfare and fighting and battling going on between the forces of evil and those aligned with them, and the forces of righteousness, those aligned with Christ. It is not just an abstract, ethereal battle that goes on in the heavenlies, though the principalities and powers in the heavenly places are surely at war, according to Ephesians 6, but it is also, and Psalm 55 reminds us, an animosity that exists between those who are of the seed of the serpent and those who are of the seed of the woman or Christ. There is always conflict in this inter-advent time that is between when Christ was resurrected and when Christ returns, there will be conflict between those who are anti-Christ and those who claim Christ as the ultimate authority and truth and their Savior, their risen and reigning Lord. Psalm 55 speaks to this conflict and it provides for us both refuge and clarity. Clarity to remind us that as this war wages, we will find ourselves nearly beaten down if we looked only at the circumstances. Surely discouraged and despairing if we looked only at the success of our life, judging it by who's standing with us or our expectations of certain relationships enduring when in fact those that are based on Christ are the only ones that truly endure. And sometimes time shows us that things we thought were built on Christ in our life actually were on sand and they come crashing down, even relationships. Yet in these times, Psalm 55 provides fitting worship for the covenant-bound warrior navigating the spiritual warfare of this inner advent time. And so we find three elements of worshipful prayer or prayerful worship in crisis. Recognizing the conflict that we have in this life so long as we stand with Christ in the world, amongst the world that hates Him, the elements of David's prayer ought to be precious, and they are indispensable for us. So let's consider them this morning. Three elements of prayerful worship in crisis. Number one, supplication. Number two, imprecation. And number three, violation. And this follows the basic structure of this psalm between the Selahs. Our first major point, supplication, we'll consider uh, most directly Psalm 55, verses 1 through 7. Here after the title, David has recorded for us, give ear, he's letting us in a window, a front row seat on a very intimate exchange of his heart crying out in anguish to the Lord and the Lord answering him through the truth of the scripture as he remembers it in the Torah and otherwise. Verse 1, give ear to my prayer, O God, and hide not yourself 
from my plea for mercy. Attend to me and answer me. I am restless in my complaint and I moan. David in this opening in these opening phrases is making a what is a supplication. It's a prayerful entreaty. It's begging in anguish. It's crying out to the Lord for his merciful provision. Supplication, the root word is supply. If I am not supplied by your mercy and grace in this time of crisis, I will surely die. I will fall victim and pray to the forces that surround me, the enemies of my soul, as they are portrayed in Psalm 55 by some examples, close friends and associates who betray you, or the sin that would overtake our own hearts if there wasn't a strong defense against it. These realities, that is the spiritual war that this life presents us before we are in glory, we need to remember to bring under these conditions our supplication before the Lord to entreat Him for His merciful provision. This is a pattern for prayer that we see David in, uh, engaging in. And this is a pattern that is not every once in a while. It's not something that David brings only when he feels necessary, when he's in the valley but on mountaintops soon forgets the Lord, but his commitment is much more extensive than that. I'll have you notice Psalm 55, 17 again. David says, Evening and morning and at noon, I utter my complaint and moan, and he hears my voice. David has committed to pray to bring his supplication before the Lord three times daily. Evening, morning, and noon. And as we've noted, even our passage, Psalm 55, is broken up then into three sections. So perhaps at evening time, he would cry out to the Lord along the lines of verses 1 through 7, uh, beseeching the throne of grace to give ear to his prayer, to hide not, the, and for the Lord to hide not his face from his plea for mercy. Perhaps then in the morning, after the Selah in verse 7, he would cry out in verse 8, I would hurry to find a shelter from the raging wind and tempest. Destroy, O Lord, divide their tongues. And so on. And finally, the third section may well be the soundtrack for his rising with the sunrise because they do not change and do not fear God. My companion stretched out his hand against his friends. And then that passage closes with this word of confidence. But I will trust in you in verse 23. Thus, we have in the elements of prayerful worship in crisis a pattern of supplication and also a pattern of repeatedly bringing our requests before the Lord. I don't know that we have time to turn there this morning, so I'll just mark this as a point of reference for you to study later. On your own time, turn to Daniel chapter 6 at some point this week. I challenge you. The parallels to, of this story, this chapter in David's life with Psalm 55 are absolutely striking. David himself, as you remember, was unlawful. He was declared an outlaw according to an arbitrary law that was passed by the manipulative satraps or governors of the provinces of Persia who went to the king and said, we need to pass a law that only you should be worshipped. So it would be illegal to pray to any other god. Well, the king, in a moment of egotistical hubris, thought, well, that sounds nice. He signed it off as law. One of the satraps, that is, governors of the provinces of Persia, was Daniel himself. And Daniel knew that he answered to a higher authority than the king. He would obey him so far as his word and his law did not contravene or contradict the law of God. But when it came to this, his commitment to pray three times daily, he would not submit. And so David continued his regular petition before the Lord perhaps drawing on Psalm 55 as his inspiration. Thus, evening, morning, and at noon, in a prominent place, he brought his supplication before the Lord. No doubt crying out to the Lord to save him, because honoring Christ was now illegal in his time. You know the rest of the story. Because the law of the Medes and the Persians could not be changed, against his will, in one sense, the king threw him into the den of lions, not wishing harm for Daniel. The king didn't sleep all night. I don't know if at this time he was a believing man, 
Perhaps that is to say he met the God of Israel at that moment. And I imagine if he had, he himself was offering supplications all night long for the life of Daniel. And if he was offering prayers to the one true God, they surely were answered. Because the next morning, when the pit was opened, it was found that Daniel was alive. And God Almighty had stopped the mouths of the lions. And he had answered him. What happened to those who came up with this nefarious plot? This law, however, well, what happened was a fulfillment of Psalm 55, verse 23. But you, O God, will cast them down into the pit of destruction. Men of blood and treachery shall not live out half their days. Though David Daniel's, excuse me, life was flashing before him in this pit with wild beasts, the Lord turned the tables and through his prayers and in the salvation of his servant, destroyed through the imprecation, through the curse of judgment, the very men who sought to make a law higher than God's with an intent to destroy his servant in Daniel. This is a pattern for prayer. Then we see in at least two Old Testament saints, Daniel and David. Let us make it a regular pattern for us that we would take the New Testament exhortation along with these Old Testament examples, and to make our requests known before the Lord regularly, in all things, through prayer and supplication, to make our requests known before the Lord. <clears throat> A few years ago, uh, someone approached me with an issue with depression. They were dependent on medication to deal with this problem. And they were beginning to feel convicted that perhaps there was a better way to deal with this despair of their soul. My challenge to them, I think in a moment of inspiration, just simply applying some scriptures, it spit out of my mouth, why not take the Lord as regularly as a pill? And as I said that, I began to think about how profound that challenge truly is. After all, how many of us when we have a physical malady, we'll faithfully, without skipping a, a, a single regiment, take that medication that our life absolutely depends on. You see those racks of pills with all the letters on them and the dates, and we have it down to a science. We don't miss a one. Why? Because we are mindful that our life depends on that life-saving medication. And so we take the pill absolutely on the hour, with regularity because we sense how serious our condition is. That's one example. Where medicine keeps us alive, we seldom miss a pill. Think about your job. If you work for an employer, there's a demand placed on your time. We joke about the nine to five, or it's an idiom in our culture. Why? Everyone knows what you mean when you say nine to five because it's that block of time that you devote to your occupation and you do not miss it. You miss it at pain of losing your job. There are people I know who are very consistent in the world with making their job on time and keeping their job by showing loyalty to their employer. There's a consistency there. Not just morning, not just three times a day, a momentary checking in, but indeed eight hours a day or thereabouts, perhaps nine or more, where they show up and are faithful to a certain task. This is enough to illustrate to us that we as humans understand the importance of commitments. When it comes to our physical well-being, when it comes to our financial stability, we will often consistently and without fail keep our commitments, even if they're down to the hour and to the minute. The message of Psalm 55 is to keep an even greater and more important commitment entirely. To bring our supplications before the Lord, evening, morning, and noon. This, as I speak it, is a convicting word for myself. And if you judge yourself falling short by this standard, I'd encourage you to repent. Let us make Psalm 55 a pattern for our own prayer life. So whatever circumstance we find ourselves in, we have a sufficient bulwark against the despair the enemy would like to flood our souls with 
because our pattern of prayer is like Daniel's or David's, like that modeled in Scripture. Secondly, under supplication, again, we're considering elements of prayerful worship in crisis. Consider the poetic persistence that the psalmist uses. In other words, he describes a kind of persistence uh, of prayer in a creative way through parallelism and repetition. He says again in verse 1, Give ear to my prayer, O God, and hide not yourself from my plea for mercy. Attend to me and answer me. I am restless in my complaint and I moan. This sense of restlessness uh, illustrates to us the zeal and the tenacity and the faithful perseverance in prayer that the psalmist uh, demonstrated. He would not give rest to his eyelids until he had given rest to his soul in bringing his supplication before the Lord. Again and again, he brings to the Lord the despair or the anguish, the anxiety, and whatever he might be feeling. He cries out, give ear, meaning listen to me. Hide not, let me be welcome in your presence. Attend to me, please be closer than, the, uh, than anyone else because I cannot trust even human relationships with, to, to uh, provide for me when the chips are down, as we see a record of betrayal even in the text. Answer me when I cry. Matthew 7, 7 through 11, you remember from the Sermon on the Mount, there is an exhortation to us to be diligent, fervent, and persistent in prayer. We are entreated through Jesus' own words to ask and to seek and to knock, to repeatedly go and make our requests known, not because the repetition in and of itself renders our prayer effective, but because we're talking about a relationship here. In Matthew 7, God Himself is, uh, is revealed as our Father, and we His dependent children. And just like my children crowd around the table for three square meals a day, and they do it expectantly with mouth open to receive the nutrition they need to survive, so we ought to gather at the table of the Lord's supplication as His dependent children, in expectation and in faith. And even if we may be worried or concerned, we are simply honest, and we bring that confession to Him. Most people's relationship with God, this is a note and con- or an application from the context that occurs to me. Why do we not ask, seek, and knock? Why do we often do a poor job displaying that persistence that Psalm 55 exemplifies? Well, it could be that most people's relationship with God is little better than the broken relationship that was the cause for this prayer in the first place. Do you notice in uh, Psalm 55, 12, uh, listen to their, their author, David, he says, For it is not an enemy who taunts me, then I could bear it. It is not an adversary who deals insolent with me, then I could hide from him. But it is you, O man, my equal, my companion, my familiar friend. We used to take sweet counsel together within God's house. We walked in the throng. Now what's he describing here? He's describing a close human relationship where he has been betrayed. Now the question, which raises a question in our minds as we see this. If our relationship with God is not a closer more loyal, more familiar, uh, more familiar, more of a sweet counsel than any other relationship, what will we have if and when our human relationships break down? We'll have nothing but hopeless despair. We must take the lesson from Psalm 55 that to nourish and strengthen our relationship with the Lord such that it is stronger than any other, and in fact, the foundation of all others, we must have this as the standard. Most find themselves at a loss when life's most difficult, trying, discouraging, betraying circumstances arrive simply because the relationship that broke in this life, the human relationship, was stronger than their relationship with the Lord. Let it not be so for us. Let us bring our prayers, our plea for mercy, our restless complaint, and our moaning to the Lord. Let us run to Him to provide for us safety, confidence, love, and escape. Listen to this language of of desire that our psalmist uses in verse 6. And I say, oh, that I had wings like a dove. 
I would fly away and be at rest. Yes, I would wander far away. I would lodge in the wilderness. I would hurry to find a shelter. It's interesting because the title of the very next psalm picks up on this dove imagery. 56, the title of this psalm is, To the choir master according to the dove on the far off terebinths, which I found in my study to be a tree like the oaks in the distance, and a miktam of David when the Philistines seized him in Gath. So the title of Psalm 56 is much like the desire of Psalm 55, that David would find in and through his relationship with the Lord in prayer an escape so he could fly like a dove away from these uh, horrible circumstances to the safety of a sturdy oak and find refuge there in its branches. I submit to you this morning that every single person who is cognizant and a reasonable human being who is of an age to understand the circumstances that hit them in the face in life, if they have not committed suicide, they are alive today because they find refuge in something. When we imagine ourselves sort of fantasizing in our mind, if you will, letting our imagination run wild, where we would like to go to fly above it all or to get away from it all, where is that place? When our mind, when our heart, when our desires take the wings of a dove in our thoughts, maybe a daydream, uh, maybe just a wishful thinking or prayer, where do those wings of imagination take us? Do they take us to the best vacation spot we could imagine or the best memory we had when growing up or to a dream of a white Christmas this time of year people think about the ideology, the idyllic circumstances of all of our dreams coming true, a romantic relationship, just to get away from it all here or there. I would challenge you that for David and by example, a better precedent is set than what most people resort to or, or, uh, or take refuge in in their thinking. David wishes that he would have wings to fly away and to be at rest. But these wings are the wings of prayer. They're the wings of supplication. And they look for refuge ultimately in his Savior, in Christ. At the end of his prayer, the wings of the dove have found, have taken him to a place of resting for his soul. And we find it as trust in Yahweh, the only true covenant keeper. We find it as trust in Adonai, the Lord he refers to in verse 9. In Elohim, these references to God over and over again in the psalm. Thus we see in the framework of Psalm 55 a pattern for prayer and poetically illustrating the persistence and the desire. Thirdly, under supplication, we might surmise, we might guess, what was the impetus of this psalm? What was the occasion the pressing uh, issue in David's life that inspired these words could have been many things. As we look through the history of David's life, we find that, for instance, in 2 Samuel chapters 15 through 18, where a rebellion is waged by his own son, Absalom in this case, and he is collaborating with a counselor of David, Ahithophel, to turn the hearts of the people against him so that Absalom might take his place as king, we find that this occasion, though it may not have inspired Psalm 55, was an absolutely perfect place for its application. Where else than that circumstance can we apply so dramatically, so graphically these words? But it is you, O oh man, my equal, my companion, my familiar friend. We used to take sweet counsel together within God's house. We walked in the throng. This, these words canonized for us, preserved forever, for all time. The grass withers, the flowers fade. But these words in Psalm 55 will stand forever. They are sufficient They are sufficient refuge and confession for us, a prayer for us to lift before the throne of grace, even if our most trusted counselors and our own children turn away from us on this side of glory. 
as the antithesis and the animosity and the enmity between the seeds of the serpent, the sons of Satan, and the sons, uh, the seed of the woman, find themselves at bitter odds. As we take note of this example, we find not only that David had many opportunities through the discouraging circumstances of relationship to hang on to this psalm, but we also find that the imprecatory nature, that is the imprecations or the calling of judgment against the covenant breakers, came true even in that case that I just cited. Spurgeon again records that both men were hung, one with a rope and one with no rope at all. Ahithophel, when it was discovered that their plot was now known to David and his life was perhaps in danger, he went and hung himself with a rope. Absalom, when he began to run from the consequences of his own unfaithfulness, found his hair tangled in a tree. And then one of David's trusted servants finished him off. They threw him in a pit, then threw rocks on top of him such that the stones made a mound and an altar, a monument, a memorial. Never forget that justice is a reality in this universe. And you cannot break the covenants of God without consequence. And if you do not repent of your grievous sin, each and every one of you, all of us, there will come a day when our destruction will be a monument to God's righteousness. I pray that for each of us, we would find that our punishment is rolled on to Christ. That in His stripes, in His broken, bruised, and bleeding body, we are justified. That's where David found his hope. In the sacrifice that the future Messiah would offer. But there were covenant breakers all around him who would not appreciate, who would not know that faith and that hope and that salvation. And for each of them, Their lives ended in judgment and destruction. And they will burn forever in hell, even as their deeds caught up with them in this life, in the case of these two men, far worse, their deeds catching up to them in the next, where the fires of God's judgment are kindled by the covenant breakers who provide fuel for the flames of His justice, a fire and a monument that will never die that says the Lord is just and righteous and every sin must be accounted for by the atoning blood of His Son or by the eternal conscious torment of hell. This is the framework and the background, the impetus and the application of this psalm. Speaking of imprecation, that leads us to point number two. The second element of prayerful worship is one that may be entirely foreign to you or to me, Why? Because we're not taught by today's cultural Christianity to pray curses on the enemies of God, are we? Yet let us ask the question, are we indeed taught in Scripture that we should align ourselves with the decree of judgment curses to vindicate the Lord and to rout the wicked? Indeed we are. Now let me submit to you at this point uh, a point that, that I've given to you before, which is that God defeats His enemies two different ways. One is He makes them His people when they surrender to His Lordship and place faith in His Christ. The second, He defeats His enemies by bringing curses upon them and condemning them. And their last moment and opportunity for repentance comes and goes, and then they suffer eternally in the next life. Now, both of these occasions... Both of these eventualities are cause for worship. The Lord is deserving of worship on account of His justice being vindicated in the flaming fires of judgment on the wicked and the unbeliever. Though we wish it in one sense on no one, and grace compels us to cry out in compassion that everyone that we encounter would come to know the saving blood of Jesus Christ. Let me tell you, there is not a moment spent in heaven thinking that God was unjust or feeling sorry for the souls that are burning in hell eternal. No, there are praises 
There is worship and glory offered to God because He has shown Himself powerful, just, and true in the destruction of the wicked. Psalm 55 makes this point extremely clear. And it is a testimony to the inspiration and continuity of Scripture that we find parallels in the language of Psalm 55 with the great typical judgments that are all throughout history and recorded in Scripture. I just want to point a few out to you. First of all, verses 6 through 8, listen to this language and think in your mind the great flood of Noah. And I say, oh, that I had wings like a dove, I would fly away and be at rest. Yes, I would wander far away, I would lodge in the wilderness. I would hurry to find a shelter from the raging wind and tempest. And in my mind as I read this, it strikes me that this song would have been appropriate on the ark as Noah and his family were among, Noah and his family were the only ones with the seed of the rest of creation that were preserved through the waters of judgment, which baptism is a picture. They found in the ark, in God's word, a place and assurance where they could fly away and be at rest, where they could have shelter from the raging wind and tempest. Yet who knows how many millions were destroyed. Their last breath came in gurgling bubbles as the waters of judgment rose over the highest mountain peak. The Lord is deserving of worship for this very act. Psalm 55 continues with a reference here more directly to Babel. Notice verse 9. The psalmist prays that in precatory or judgment, would, uh, in precatory prayers of judgment would be brought on the heads of his enemies. He says, destroy, O Lord, divide their tongues, for I see violence and strife in the city. This, no doubt, is a direct reference to the judgment of Babel. Mankind, in Genesis 11, as we recall, had decided to raise up a, a testimony of their own unity and might above the knowledge of God Almighty. And so the higher that the Tower of Babel was built, signifying their rebellion, the greater their blasphemy before the Lord of glory. But judgment was brought on them. How did it happen? God confused their languages. He literally divided the nations by dividing their tongues. And we read this in Genesis 11.9. And so David is crying out for the God of justice to intervene as he did at Babel so that the enemy would not successfully blaspheme the Lord without an accounting. Babylon itself is a city that epitomized and was archetypical of the kind of rebellion of Babel. We see this later picked up even in the book of Revelation. And we see it paralleled in this reference in Psalm 55. When it says, day and night they go around it on its walls, speaking of a city of godlessness. And iniquity and trouble are within it. Ruin is in its midst. Oppression and fraud do not depart from its marketplace. David is describing the social circumstances of rebellion against the Lord. Where a city like Babylon, or a city like Nineveh, or any of the wicked cities that uh, organize themselves by some other authority than the Lord Jesus Christ do everything that they do as worship to a false god. They will ultimately be destroyed as we see Babylon was. It has fallen and as we see every Babylon, every Babel will be in Revelation 18 and 19. The great uh, proclamation that all the world's systems and governments that have reared their ugly heads against the Lord's anointed will become absolutely, uh, absolutely ruinous in the future as the Lord levels judgment against his enemies. Verses 12 through 13, some of these references that parallel Psalm 55 commemorate judgments that have gone before David. Some of them are prophetic of the future. I submit to you as David is writing himself a type of Christ, prefiguring future circumstances, we find in this unique betrayal a foreshadowing of what would happen between Judas and Christ. Verse 12, it is not an enemy who taunts me, then I could bear it. It is an adversary who deals insolently with me. It is you, O man, my equal, my companion, my familiar friend. David says in verse 15, let death steal over them, 
Let them go down to Sheol alive, for evil is in their dwelling place and in their heart. This happened again by way of suicide, like Ahithophel, so Judas hung himself. When he could not bear the weight of his reprobation after selling his Savior out for 30 pieces of silver, and remorse but not repentance, this wicked son of Satan went out and promptly hung himself. And as he did so, the fulfillment of Psalm 55 of the future son of David was unveiled in time before our very eyes. No one ultimately betrays Christ and lives. He will be destroyed. This is the reality of imprecation. Finally, that reference I just read to you reminds us of what? Again, verse 15, let death steal over them. Let them go down to Sheol alive. A direct reference I submit to you to the sons of Korah. For evil is in their dwelling place and in their heart. Another reference for future study, number 16. Do you remember those who organized themselves to oppose the Lord's anointed in Moses' day? Korah and company. When these evil men said that they were sufficient to rule and that Moses was a fool who represented God's authority, there was imprecation. Uh, Moses went before the Lord. He brought his request and supplication before the throne of grace. How did the Lord answer? Well, the Lord could have answered by bringing Korah to repentance, but in his inscrutable wisdom at this point in history, he chose to send an earthquake to open up and literally swallow alive all of the rebels. And so they went down to Sheol, the place of death, alive. These are the references that we're reminded of that place a meat on the skeleton or the bones of the poetic imagery of Psalm 55. The imprecation of God, judgment deserving of sin, is a reality. And that's why when we preach and proclaim the gospel, we are to say, today is the day of salvation. Do not risk waiting one more moment in open rebellion before the Lord of glory, who is absolutely just in destroying you in an instant and sending you to hell for your rebellion against His great name. Thus, this fear of the Lord will lead to, when it's rightly taught and rightly grasped in the soul, this fear of the Lord will lead to faith in Christ because we will more readily run to the only safe haven and the uh, soul's wings as a dove, as it were, will fly to Christ and will find in Him our terebinth, our tree of security, knowing full well that if we did not fly to Christ, that we would share the fate of Judas, of the, of the Korah rebellion, of those who died in the flood, of Babel, of Ahithophel, of Absalom, of all covenant breakers. Finally, this morning, the third element of prayerful worship, violation. Supplication, imprecation, violation. This would be a violation of covenant. The message in Psalm 55 is that covenants have consequences. Glorious consequences when they are secure. Horrific consequences when they are broken. The final section of Psalm 55, reading again, verses 20 through 23. My companion stretched out his hand against his friends. Notice, he violated his covenant. His speech was smooth as butter, yet war was in his heart. His words were softer than oil, yet they were drawn swords. Cast your burden on the Lord, and he will sustain you. He will never permit the righteous to be moved. But you, O God, will cast them down into the pit of destruction. Men of blood and treachery shall not live out half their days, but I will trust in you. You notice the back and forth, the comparison and the contrast. There are those who endure the consequences of covenant breaking and those who receive, who enjoy the blessings of covenant keeping. When David writes about these things, again, we're reminded of Ahithophel, for instance, in 2 Samuel 15. He was one of David's trusted advisors, one of his closest confidants. He would have been one that David would ask in confidentiality. I have a difficult circumstance to deal with as a magistrate and king. Would you add your wisdom 
Keep this in confidence and help me to govern well this people. David recognizing with his son, <clears throat> with his son, the author of Proverbs, Solomon, that there is safety in a multitude of counselors. This man, that is to say, Ahithophel, had a covenant with David. He had a relationship with him of trust. There were promises there. He was his confident, his companion. But what did he prove himself to be in the end? A covenant breaker, and he betrayed David. But it is you, O oh man, my equal, my companion, my familiar friend, David says. We used to take sweet counsel together within God's house. We walked in the throng. But now even you, who pretended to be a worshiper of Yahweh, have broken covenant with me. This is serious. This is serious because this uh, aspect, this symptom of covenant breaking, was more than just a failure in his relationship with David. The covenant breakers in view in Psalm 55 ultimately are in breach of covenant with Almighty God. This was true of the Ziphites in the previous psalm. There is a theme running through these songs. O God, save me by your name and vindicate me by your might. David is crying out in supplication there. Why? What's the occasion? It's because the Ziphites went and told Saul where David was hiding. These, his countrymen, betrayed him. In these instances... David's trusted companions, advisor, advisors, friends, countrymen, Ziphites, these turned on him and became his enemies. We are reminded that this can be and is often a reality for many who uh, live very long in the faith at all. Matthew 10, 34-39 comes to mind. In that section, Jesus says, I come not to bring peace, but to bring a sword. Sometimes the sword of the gospel separates the closest of relationships, even family members from one another. But let me tell you, that's not because those covenants aren't important. It is that it, it, it's, it's showing that when they are broken, a much more serious covenant is also broken. When we are unfaithful to family, it is no surprise that we are also unfaithful to the Lord. Think of the covenants that we understand well today. A husband and wife, for instance. A commitment of faithfulness till death do us part. It is no surprise to me. It is no surprise to me that someone who has a problem with their bride, faithfulness to their bride, has also a problem of faithfulness as the bride of Christ to their bridegroom, Jesus Christ. Why? Because marriage finds its foundation in its theological reality. Relationships between us as humans can be symptomatic and often are of a much more serious relationship. Taken on the positive side, we stay with our spouses out of a commitment to Jesus Christ, our Savior and Lord. That unbreakable bond of the gospel ought to be the standard by which we make all our biblical commitments. These covenants are secure and serious when they are in Christ. They're always serious. They're insecure when they're built on anything else. In contrast to his companion who violated this covenant with David, David invokes the covenant name of the Lord in verse 22. In other words, he says, uh, his speech was smooth as butter, verse 21, speaking of the betrayer. Yet war was in his heart. His words were softer than oil, yet they were drawn swords. Then verse 22, cast your burden on the Lord, Yahweh. Cast your burden on Yahweh. Last time we were in the Psalms, we remarked on the import, the content, the meaning behind the name Yahweh. Who is Yahweh? The name of God, the self-existent eternal covenant keeper. He is everlasting, and His covenants endure as He does. He is self-consistent, absolute, unchangeable, and His truth is ever coming into manifestation to us as people as He is the God of redemption and the God of revelation. He is sovereign over all. Thus we see in context, of, though David is surrounded by covenant breakers, he has faith and assurance because his God will never break his covenant with him. He is Yahweh, the ultimate covenant keeper. Finally this morning, the violation of the covenant carries ultimate sanctions. Verses 19 and 23, as David continues to compare and contrast, we see that this fallout 
in relationship is symptomatic ultimately of all of those who do not fear the Lord. In verse 19, we have this. God will give ear and humble them, he who is enthroned from of old, because they do not change and do not fear God. David is identifying a fundamental issue in the soul of those that deny the Lord and do not keep their covenants. They are ones who do not fear the Lord because they don't recognize Him as enthroned eternally. The God who is always there, sees all, has omnipotent power, perfect justice at His disposal, and has decreed a day of reckoning. But because they do not change, in other words, because they are not affected by this reality, they do not fear the Lord. But for those who show by their life they do not fear the Lord, there will come a time where ultimate covenant sanctions are dealt out and they will sin their last sin before being cast into utter destruction. As God, it says in verse 23, will cast them down into the pit of destruction. Men of blood and treachery shall not live out half their days. Let me close with a note from the book of Matthew. Jesus We're coming up to the point of judgment proclamation in the gospel record of Matthew in our Matthew series, which we'll pick up on, Lord willing, next Sunday. And as we get closer to these uh, statements, especially in Matthew 24, we see that there is a covenant lawsuit being brought against the city of Jerusalem who has come Babylon-like. She has broken her commitments to the Lord. And she and those who populate her who do not recognize Christ as the Messiah will receive ultimate sanctions if they do not repent. As Jesus was delivering these words, he did so emphatically and forcefully, but he also did so in a context of compassion. He cries out uh, that uh, for those in Jerusalem, first of all, in Matthew 23, 37, O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to it, how often would I have gathered your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings, and you would not. See your houses left to you desolate, for I tell you, you will not see me again until you say, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. The sections that follow are the chilling reality of covenant punishments or sanctions. As Jesus leaves to sit on the Mount of Olives, he prophesies the destruction of the temple, saying, among other things, that nation will rise against nation, kingdom against kingdom, in verse 7, and there will be famines, earthquakes, various places. All these are but the beginning of the birth pangs. So we see in Jesus Christ, our Lord, the kind of fear and compassion that we ought to have as we consider those who are outside of Christ even this morning. There are those who right now are under the wrath of God and are at enemies of the cross of Christ because they haven't repented to Jesus. There should be an aspect of us that cries out that they would repent. But there should also be a fearful aspect that God is just and right in His perfect timing to bring justice to them. Having explored the justice connection then between our relationship to God as evidenced by our relationships with each other, let us consider the grace connection. The fear of the Lord demonstrated through faith in Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior, is the foundation for all covenant keeping. It's the foundation for deliverance and for salvation. From Babel in the Old Testament Scriptures, Genesis 11, all the way to Babylon as the destruction is prophesied in Revelation 18 and 19, we see the fate of those who set themselves against the Lord and His anointed. Even in our worship text this morning, Revelation 19, 1 through 5, the Word of God concludes with a a note to this antithesis, this fundamental conflict between those who align themselves with the enemies of God and those who are in Christ. My prayer is that every one of us may be found among those 
who have graciously received salvation and worship the Lord for His justice and cry out in prayerful worship and supplication that those that we know of who do not know Christ would bow the knee before it is too late. Let us close in prayer. O Heavenly Father, we bring even this morning our supplication and our petition before You in praise. We pray that You would intervene on behalf of those that so desperately need the gospel. We pray, Lord, that the reality of our God in His mercy offered through Jesus Christ, our Savior and crucified Lord, and in His judgment that upholds His righteousness forever on every sin, Lord, I pray that we would preach both the fear of God and the grace of Jesus Christ, and that it would be heeded by more, that they would cry out for salvation in the Son of David. We thank you for this season, Lord, that sometimes provides us more opportunities to do exactly that. We pray that we would be faithful to use them, that your word would be ready and your spirit would apply it through our relationships with them so that more might join us in worship of your great name. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Praise the Lord.